2: friend, someone who I've known for a long, long time and with whom I worked uh, at Verso on this particular book and the previous ones. It's always difficult to get Ben to change titles. Sometimes he would get a bit cross when we were doing the new version of Under Three Flags and uh, I wanted to call it anarchism in the colonial world, and he insisted on calling it the age of globalization. And we pleaded saying there are the thousand and one books on globalization. And please, no, that's what it is. If you're changing it from under three flags. So now we wish we'd left it at under three flags, but never mind. Um, it's, um, Ben died uh, in Indonesia, which actually, you know, would have made him very happy. It was a country he loved greatly, a country to which he had devoted a large part of his personal and his uh, academic and scholarly life, a language he spoke very well, in fact, so well that he introduced one or two words to the language, which, for an outsider, it was quite a remarkable achievement, and was hoping to write his first book in Behasa, the language spoken in Indonesia and, and, and Malaya. He had started making notes. That was his great ambition, to see whether uh, he could do it. And uh, he died and was loved in that country. And I remember visiting Indonesia a couple of years ago, And if you said you knew Ben Anderson in certain circles, this was like, you know, knowing God. I mean, he was really much, much loved uh, by ordinary people who had heard of him and who knew what he had done after the military dictatorship of 65, which led to the deaths of up to a million people. Let's leave it at that because the figures are disputed. And Ben and some of his colleagues at Cornell exposed that coup d'etat and what it had done. And this was not unknown in Indonesia. Uh, Ben was also largely responsible, not on his own, of course, with others in popularizing and making known the work of Indonesian writers, journalists, novelists, who were hardly ever known. And one of his last texts, not last, but you know, one of his last few texts was uh, on the Nobel Prize, how the Nobel Prize for literature is awarded, the principles on which it's awarded. He'd done a country by country breakdown and a Cold War breakdown as well. So that during the Cold War, large numbers of Soviet dissidents got the prize and it was regardless of the quality, and you had a a slight flashback to that this year, or last year, when a Ukrainian uh, writer was suddenly given the prize uh, without any warning at all, and it, it, it took one back, and what angered Ben and all those who knew the works of this great Indonesian novelist Pramodhya Tour, that he had never been awarded the prize. He had written his quartet of novels, the Buru Quartet, on the island of Buru, which was a prison island, a cruel, brutal island, where prisoners were sent to die. They were sent there because they hoped they would die. And uh, uh, Tour kept them alive, kept their spirits going by telling them stories every night. It's not an exotic work like the Arabian Nights, but it was every night he would tell a story to the prisoners to keep up their morale. And these novels, banned in Indonesia, but some translated, according to Ben, translated very badly, Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they were circulated, and there was a lot of pressure on the Nobel Committee to give them the prize, but it was never given, uh, which is a disgrace, really, because he was a very fine novelist and and lived, you know, till the late 80s, if my memory serves me right. And Ben was also incredibly supportive to young writers and novelists in that country, Eka Kurniawan, whose work has recently been published in English, really owes it all, well, quite a lot of it, to Ben, uh, who sat down, translated some of his short stories, and made them available to a much, much larger uh, uh, world. And Eka's work is now being praised, talked about everywhere, etc., etc. And he says Ben made me, because without I, I write in Bahasa. How else would my work have been known? Um, So he will be greatly missed, not just by us, who knew him, were privileged to know him, but by large numbers of Indonesians, including many who had heard of him but had never met him. Uh, And he died there, was buried with great love. Descriptions I've received of the ceremony are very moving, and that's what he would have liked. Um, Today, obviously, um, Tim and Lale will speak about various aspects of Ben's work in his life, just to give you a tiny bit of history of his best-known work, The uh, Imagined Communities, which, as Tim wrote in the London Review of Books, the two two words never put together have now become sort of so well-known. And it really drove Ben mad as well. I think he referred to it, you know, as it's become a banality, this thing. And that's what sometimes happens when you produce work like that. Initially, just so that you know, the uh, uh, academic in Manchester called Theodore Shannin was preparing a set of essays on nationalism and he was hoping that the first essay would be by Tom Nan, and then Ben and others had been commissioned. Ben being meticulous in these matters, often uh, especially where academic or deadlines uh, uh, connected with publishing houses were concerned, produced his essay. It was called Imagine Communities. It was a shorter version of the book and Tom Nann. Uh, was lazy and never sent his essay. And when Tom didn't send his essay, Theodore Shanin went into a sulk and said, Oh, well, I can't be bothered to do the book, which in the end turned out very well for us at first, <laughs> Because we, um, Imagine Communities was read by the editorial board, discussed endlessly, notes were sent, notes were exchanged. <laughs> Francis Mulhan was one of the (coughs) editors involved in its editing. Uh, Ben's uh, younger brother uh, Perry got into the act, sent Ben very long notes, and gradually a small essay became a larger book. And even then, when we published the book, naturally, we had no idea what its impact would be or how it would sell. How could we, you know? Uh, and it has been selling consistently since 1983, when it was published, and has uh, become one of the backlist bestsellers of uh, uh, Verso, to which Ben tended to give uh, all his uh, books. I think one or two slipped us. I'm not still not quite sure why, but there is uh, a treasure a treasure trove that he has left behind. In some of his letters he said that he was always in the the habit when he went to a city to photograph it, to think about it, to write notes about it, to have diary pages on it. And all this material is being collected now by Cornell and the Cornell Library. So I hope in some shape or form we will make it available in the in in the in the years ahead, because one thing that Ben hated, but really hated, was people was tourism, which pretended to be more than it was, and people who really went to stories and then came back and wrote a pontificatory essay when they knew absolutely nothing about the country, the city, the people, the history, and. Uh, One such text he wrote, which I might read out later if if there's time, was a ferocious attack. I think it's the most polemical text Ben ever wrote was on this subject called James Fenton's Slideshow, uh, (coughs) which was attacking Fenton, Kapuchinsky, V.S. Naipaul, the three writers he took up, For how they wrote and what they wrote, and it really—he never wanted it reprinted. I said, "Why?" You know, I said, "It's excellent. It must be reprinted." And he said, "No, it upset a lot of people." (laughs) 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 And that was—and it it, it upset one of his colleagues, Martin Bernal, who was a friend of uh, James Fenton. So we were never allowed to. uh, reprint it, uh, but I hope we will in some book uh, in, in in the years ahead. I will read a bit <laughs> bit from it to give you a feeling of what it's uh, like later. But now, without further ado, Um
3: I feel like a bit of an interloper, because I actually am not a Southeast Asianist. I'm a, I'm a Middle East scholar. But I can also say that everything that Benedict Anderson has written in a book form I have read... Uh, and and it was an introduction in graduate uh, school in the US, where this book was the book that turned so many of us onto nationalism, but also to a kind of a generous, intellectually curious, extraordinarily beautifully written form of scholarship, with which we had not been familiar up until that point. But before I... Actually, I want to talk about, before I talk about his influence on people outside of his particular area of Southeast Asia. I want to read a passage from the memoir, which I was lucky to have been sent. Um, he's uh, writing about his formative experiences at Cambridge, where he was an undergraduate student of classics. says I I won't talk about the first formative experience because the second one is where I want to use as a kind of a jumping point to talk about how amazingly wonderful and relevant his work was in so many different ways and what made it so distinct and different than so many other comparativists who have written like him or in his field. My second formative Cambridge experience occurred during the Suez Crisis of 1956 when British and French troops colluding with the Israelis invaded Egypt to block General Nasser's attempt to nationalize the body that regulated international traffic along the great French-built canal. I was not in the least interested in this crisis. However, one afternoon, as I was walking back to my room across one of the university's athletic fields, I noticed a small crowd of brown-skinned students making indignant protest speeches. So I stopped by to listen, simply out of idle curiosity. Suddenly, out of the blue, the protesters were assaulted by a gang of big English students, uh, big English student bullies, most of them athletes. They were singing, "God Save the Queen." To me, this was incomprehensible and reprehensible. The protesters, mostly Indian and Selinese, uh, mostly Indians and Salonese, were much smaller and thinner. I love that little tiny detail. And so stood no chance. Without thinking, I tried to intervene to help them, only to have my spectacles snatched off my face and smashed in the mud. I had never been so angry in my life. For the first time, I'd encountered English racism and imperialism. When many years later, I came to write about nationalism for an English audience in imagined communities, I poured out in the form of sarcasm, irony, and innuendo some of the rage I still felt." Um, part of the reason that I wanted to begin with this passage is because, of course, aside from the fact that it has to do with the Middle East, and I bang on about the Middle East, with being my area. Part of the reason that this really appeals is because, in a sense, it um it touches on lots of things. First of all, it's beautifully written, those little tiny details about the thin and small students versus the big athletic English bullies singing, God Save the Queen. Uh it's very cinematic, it's a very cinematic image. Um uh, aside from the fact that it talks about uh, the specific ways in which these world historic events were felt by him in an, in a, in an intimate way, which actually is the way it, uh, That style of writing echoes throughout all of his writing. It's, he's, he's, he's very adept at con- uh, connecting the world historic and the intimate. What really appealed to me about that is because what politicized him, what turned him on to anti-imperialism and to, uh, as he says in, that, in the sentences that follow that, to Marxism, is an, e- an empathy, a sense of empathy for people from the other shores. And it is this style of writing from the other shores which makes him incredibly distinct from all the other comparativists to which I was introduced when I was trained as a political scientist um, in a U.S. Grad, uh, graduate program. What I thought was this beauty and erudition of his work is, is, of course, humbling. I mean, I don't know if you guys have had the misfortune of having to read political science texts. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hideous exercise. I was actually really happy that I was introduced as a sociologist. I'd much rather be known as a, soci- a sociologist than a scholar of politics. Um, And part of it has to do with the fact that that style of writing, a kind of a bureaucratic style of writing, uh, is is something that he knows nothing about. He uh, draws on poetry and on, on novels, on personal experience, and on this extraordinary erudition in God knows however many languages he spoke. Uh, which included a number of European languages, a number of classical languages, and then God knows however many different languages from the Southeast Asia. Um, he, there's something in him of the two people he actually uh, talks about being influenced by and admiring. And the two people that he mentions are Melville and Walter Benjamin. And uh, anybody who knows me knows that I bang on about Melville as well endlessly. Um, but, but in his work also you get the same kind of glorious, exhilarating, unclassifiable style of literary imagination, which is not bounded by borders. This writing from another shore makes his writing so incredibly appealing because he comes at the world at an angle. When he writes about nationalism, this is not Gellner, this is not... Even Hobsbawm or Nairn, with whom he's slightly more sympathetic, although of course still critical of both of them, he is writing about nationalism not from a metropolitan place, but he's writing about it from Southeast Asia or from Latin America or from all the other places in which nationalism meant something different than what it had meant in Eastern Europe or in Central Europe. And I think that was also another thing about him that blew me away, was because... uh, As an an, uh, Iranian raised in Iran, daughter of communists, when I was first introduced to many of these academic texts about nationalism, I couldn't recognize anything that I knew in a kind of a fundamental, textured, personal way about nationalism in any of those works until I read Benedict Anderson. And part of it was because he was unabashedly sentimental. Uh, The work and and people accuse him of being a romantic. I don't know what's wrong with that, actually, because there is something extraordinarily rich in affect and emotion in his work, which which is what is so powerful about uh, his argument about how nationalism actually embeds, in some senses, in our souls and in our bodies. He, um, I remember, I actually remember this. like, it was, I was a very nerdy student, so I was very affected by reading texts, but I remember reading, as a grad student, this sentence on uh, page 10 of my graduate copy of Imagined Communities. Um, he says... Um, The extraordinary survival over thousands of years of Buddhism, Christianity, or Islam in dozens of different social formations attests to their imaginative response to the overwhelming burden of human suffering, disease, mutilation, grief, age, and death. Why was I born blind? Why is my best friend paralyzed? Why is my daughter retarded? The religion attempts to explain... The great weakness of all evolutionary progressive styles of thought, not excluding Marxism, is that such questions are answered with impatient silence. And then he goes on, and his footnotes, there is another person whose footnotes I always read, actually, sometimes before the text, and that's Karl Marx in Capital. But his footnotes are absolutely wonderful as well. And in his footnotes, he says that we fail to explain the abyss between protons and proletariat. And I I he's hilarious and wonderful and brilliant, and, and, and he's trying to explain why is it that religion is displaced by nationalism in these particular ways, and he appeals to these incredibly intimate, affective questions, which I thought was extraordinary. Of course, at that stage, I hadn't read a lot of for example, feminist writing about affect. So this came to me as a complete shock, as a body blow. And I think it completely changed the course of my academic scholarly life. I think without him, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't have written my first book about forms of nationalism. I wouldn't have done any of the things I've done. So in some senses, Anderson uh, was extraordinarily life-changing for me. But the second book of his that I really loved also was Under Three Flags, which is now renamed Globalization and Something-Something. Um, you know, there's actually a good strategy to rename it, because I went on, when I went um, to look at his books, I saw that and I thought, shit, there's a book of his I haven't bought, and I was about to buy it. And then I realized that it was just renamed under three flags. Um, actually, I love that book as well, and if you haven't read it, uh, he says that he intentionally structured it like a serial novel. So you'd go from chapter to chapter, and each chapter is a bit like uh, an installment of a serial novel. And that's absolutely true. It's a story that follows a number of anarchists uh, from their homes in uh, Southeast Asia across the globe, from in the Philippines across the globe. And, and it's an extraordinary story, and he tells it very self-consciously in ways that find echoes or resonances in in our age of transnational violence. Uh, I remember that he gave a talk at SOAS, where I teach, uh, shortly after September, it was probably after 2004, because that's when I started there. which ended up becoming the preface of the book, in which he very consciously spoke about anarchist forms of violence and the responses to them uh, in, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, as a way to understand the forms of transnational violence happening in our time. And I think that in that sense, his ability to muster a vast archive of material to touch on an enormous body of liter- literary work in order to be able to tell a transnational history, transcontinental history of anarchism and the violent responses to it is also something that I think m- many of us scholars would love to do, and none of us have the ability or the style to do it. And, and so I, if you haven't read that, that's also another book of his which is life-changing, actually, certainly. So it, it was for me.
4: Jim. Um. Well, uh, what I've done over the last couple of days is, you know, uh, rather predictably going back to imagined communities and reading it again um, and thinking about why it has the kind of hold on us that it does. It certainly has a hold on me. I mean, reading it again, I think, makes me, uh, makes me think it, it's even more extraordinary and wonderful and productive. Um, and there are various, various things one can say about it. Maybe some of them will come up in discussion, but let me just uh, say a couple of things here. Um, well, first of all, um, the title. The title is wonderful. <laughs> it, may have been, it may have become a banality. He may have been worried about it, uh, but it's, it's a wonderful title. Um, because it launches one immediately into the question, uh, well, I wonder if there are any non-imagined communities, real communities. Uh, What do we mean by community? How do human beings make themselves a world, uh, a, a set of commonalities, that they are uh, that they believe they truly belong to and that they treasure and that they're as 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 Anderson says right at the beginning they're willing to die for they they're, they are indeed also willing to kill for but many many more have died for the nation than have killed for the nation. And uh, somehow or other, a kind of uh, sociology or an account of the human condition that doesn't somehow or other face that, Uh, the extraordinary power of the idea of nation to command loyalty, sacrifice, devotion uh, to death um, is is a challenge uh, that... You know, faces us. Um, the way I think Benedict Anderson tackles it is 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 very moving. It's um, it, 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 it's full of an inimitable mixture of sympathy and skepticism, and you know he struggles with himself. I think through the two hundred pages to try and. Uh, reach a balance between uh, fully admitting and sort of uh, finding form for the magic and the intensity of the idea of a nation, Um, but also uh, keeping an awareness all the way through of the danger of this magic. Um, He's all all the time trying to trace what's the difference between benign nationalism, and he does believe intensely that nationalism, uh, for a lot of its history, has been benign. It's been a form of freedom, a form of resistance, uh, a a way of making community in the face of power and its uh, continual uh, determination to shatter community into subjecthood or uh, um, or, or uh, manufacture a false community a racial community for instance or a tremendous passage in the book about uh, nationalism and racism
0: mm-hmm.
4: which uh, which the kind of liberal left I think uh, far too readily conflates um, uh, and, and I mean, Anderson's argument really is that if you if you want uh, a villain of the piece here, a real producer of racism, then you don't go to nationalism. You go to imperialism. You go to empire, uh, which is the the force that produced uh, racial. Uh, Uh, categorization and racial antagonism. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's an argument, and you can argue back with it, but I I, I think it's also an extraordinary moment in the book where he's um, struggling in a kind of um, typical way uh, to try and define the boundary between, as I say, between, if you like, benign nationalism and malignant nationalism, because of, of course there are, they're both. They're both. Um, but equally, you know, and I think this is a sort of undercurrent in the book, which uh, I, I do find <laughs> coming more coming to the foreground of my reading of it in present circumstances. Um, if there's a benign and a malignant nationalism, there's certainly a benign and a malignant internationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, So compare and contrast, if you cast your mind back to the uh, debate about uh, the extension of bombing into Syria, compare and contrast the speech of Alex Salmon with that of Hillary Benn. I, I for one, massively prefer the rather kind of uh, commonsensical, conservative, national (coughs) skepticism Of an Alex Salmon to the dreadful, dreadful pseudo internationalism of Hilary Benn. So I think, that's a, I think that's a sort of lesson that you actually continually learn from, uh, from uh, Benedict Anderson's work that uh, these terms, international and national, are actually very, very slippery. I mean, you know, they can be masks of power or they can be instruments of uh, genuine uh, self-determination <coughs> and liberation and resistance. And it's, it, it's, it's the way in which the two so continually uh, fuse and, you know, transform and metamorphose, which he's trying to make sense of. That's one thing, and then just very briefly, uh, because I've spoken about that far too long, um, I mean I suppose for me, uh, as you know an art historian of sorts, and certainly you know somebody who's interested in the history and conditions of representation in social circumstances, one of the things that's very extraordinary, wonderful about the book, is that. Uh, Benjaminian in this sense that it's one of its central subjects is well if we think that nations are imagined communities then under uh, under what specific conditions representational conditions um, is nation possible as a subject of representation Um, and and the whole uh, discussion towards the beginning of the book about the role of what uh, Anderson calls print capitalism, the intersection of a certain of certain forces of production, uh, um, printing, uh, uh, preeminently, also you know uh, uh, other kinds of technologies of reproduction. He's very interested in the map, and so on. Uh, the intersection of those forces of production with relations of production, uh, the, sp- the specific drive of capitalism to uh, harness those forces and make markets. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's still an extraordinary and brilliant discussion um, in which uh, the role of uh, the dictionary um, the novel, the newspaper, the map, the census, the school textbook, and right? all this app- this specific apparatus in which oh and and well, I suppose behind all this language, but sort of language in its printed form, language as uh, that uh disseminable entity, uh, the discussion of the way in which that made the idea of nation possible, made it, as he says, modular, so that it could be imitated and reproduced.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Replicated. That's an
4: extraordinary discussion. It's also, I think, uh, and I think I was already saying this a few years ago. And I uh, reviewed under three flags. um, There's a certain tragedy to looking back on print capitalism and nationalism as (coughs) these these two entities so tied together. Because I think we perhaps are moving beyond the era of print capitalism into something I want to call screen capitalism, in which, you know, in, in which uh, uh, the means of, of representation are fundamentally different. And um, it's interesting, isn't it, that in 1983, and still in the time of the revised edition Anderson is basically, uh, look, it's nuanced, but let me just simplify a little. He's basically certain that the age of religious solidarities and communities is over, and that nation truly substituted for those uh, solidarities and entities. Um, well, we can't help thinking, can we, as readers of the book uh, now, that that seems, uh, well, for some of us perhaps a little optimistic. Um, and uh, asking ourselves maybe whether the whether there may be the same kind of connection as Anderson makes between print capitalism and the nation, uh, between screen capitalism and the Revival of uh, of various forms of uh, transnational religious community. Uh, it's it's a thought anyway, and it's the kind of thought I think that this extraordinary book makes possible. Thank
2: you, Jim. That is, in fact, a very fertile thought. Actually, because whenever you, I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, if you look at the principal way in which some of the jihadi groups communicate today it's the mobile phone, less so now because they can be targeted uh, and it's the computer Yeah, you know, yeah. very rapidly uh, the message can get I mean, the, the speed in itself is something no previous form of
4: communication could compete with and also the kind of uh... <laughs> The illusion or reality, but anyway, it's certainly the experience of an immediate individual communication. Hmm. Um, I do have to say,
3: I did read your review in preparing for this, Tim. And actually, that bit jumped out at me, because I remember you writing that um, the nation has been replaced by the ummah. But I was looking at some of the examples you gave, and you gave hmm. Hezbollah, for example, as an example, yeah. which to me is actually a nationalist, it's a, it's a Lebanese group yeah. that uses a kind of a transnational discourse as, as one that... Um, uh, uh uses to mobilize. Even ISIS, uh, despite, like, it's uh, the jihadis, despite thousands of international recruits, it is ultimately a group of Iraqi and Syrian origin. Yeah. And, and many of these sort of supported, supposedly supranational groups speak in English or Arabic to each other, more often English than Arabic. And, uh, and, and they're very territorially based. So yeah. they, they, whether consciously or not, still echo the national form in, in ways that Makes me wonder to what extent. In some senses, the comparison here shouldn't be with so much with the nationalists yeah. as it could be with the transnational anarchists who mobilise nationalism, for example, in their cause.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> Hezbollah no, I wouldn't describe as anarchists. I mean, you know... No, 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 I wouldn't say they're ah. anarchists,
3: but I'm saying as in their methods and movements, in the ways in which they organize, in their... The the, the, the anarchist movements that he describes in Under Three Flags yes. sound to me it's somewhat quite similar sig- yeah. in this case.
2: It's just that there is a difference, I think, not that we shouldn't get into this now, but between ISIS or al-Qaeda, two of the sort of big groups, <laughs> And Hezbollah, which despite its religious ideology is a more traditional national liberation group in a way. But the the other point I I wanted to say and should have stressed that the origins of this book are uh, a a life beyond boundaries uh, is quite interesting. Ben didn't want it published in English for many years because he wasn't convinced that it was good enough, Uh, and he'd done it in a hurry uh, for his uh, Japanese uh, fans, students, colleagues. Uh, His books did very well in Japan, all his books, and questions began to be asked within the Japanese Academy, who the hell is this guy? And so the uh, scholars in Japan he worked with said, could you do us a huge favor and just write us a short account of who you are and where you come from and what made you uh, what you have become? And that's when he he sat down and uh, wrote this book. And for years we've been trying to persuade him to let us do it in English and uh, finally... Uh, I, he, he Perry, his younger brother, uh, really put pressure and said, you must do it. It's crazy not to. And he agreed and then revised it and improved it. But that is the origins of the book. We've got a bit of time before we go to questions. So I, I'll just read to you this piece, which you won't find the style of this, well, no, the style is very good, but it's very different. It's very sharp and polemical, which, you know, Ben is more relaxed when he writes. But this is why. Um, it, it, it'll just give you a slightly different uh, picture of him, that when he wanted to, he could be very sharp and uh, polemical indeed. Political tourists come in three types. Two of them quite traditional, one suggestively new. On the one hand, there are all those people who see in dramatic political developments in someone else's country a hopeful or hellish vision of the future of their own. Since they set off knowing what they want to find, they rarely stay longer than is necessary to bring back the illustrative evidence, what one might generically call the slides for their political prognoses all the more so if their travel expenses have been paid for by the foreign country's regime or by well-heeled sponsors back home. What is characteristic of their slides is an often touching humility. There may be photos or vignettes of the Tories being received by Mussolini, Stalin, Uh, Nasser or Nehru, but their inclusion serves mainly to persuade the reader-viewer that he or she is getting genuine first-hand testimony. The important thing is that hopeful, fearful future. The second type, which, however, is not always easy to distinguish from the first, is the usually intellectual celebrity. Such people do not have to worry about genuine first-hand testimony, since the celebrity is, with luck, much better known than the politics with which he or she is holiday, If the first type hopes to show himself in the shadow of great events, the second expects to show events in the great shadow of himself. <laughs> For these purposes, the best events are those which by, art, by artful chiaroscuro uh, contrast the tourist as violently as possible with the political landscape. Since the real interest is the celebrity, it is no surprise that these holidays are usually paid for by publishers or television companies. (laughs) The contemporary doyen of this form of tourism is undoubtedly V.S. Naipaul who loudly proclaims all that nice Englishmen now feel ashamed to say about the third world, even when they think it. (laughs) It is not that Naipaul does not have views about politics, but rather there is an instructively photogenic touch to his itineraries. Buenos Aires, not Caracas, Kinshasa, not Maputo. Lumpo, not Algiers, show in sharp dyspeptic relief the civilized clubman against a backdrop of oriental savagery. Self, against the backdrop of oriental savagery, self-delusion, fanaticism, and stupidity. The choice of locations for n- Naipaul slideshows, slideshows is politically random, except that they must be third, not first or second world, But they are always shrewdly aesthetic. After all, would anyone buy Naipaul on Belgium or Bulgaria? (laughs) What year was this written? 1986. The third type of political tourist has neither ideological nor aesthetic objectives in mind. He has no message to bring home and no grandiose persona for sale. He is a creature of the media. And his travels to exotic politics are aimed at the acquisition of slides which will be saleable on the mass market for the vicarious frissons they offer to consumers. This kind of Jacques Cousteau neither brings back messages from the sharks and killer whales nor poses ironically at their expense. He aims to show you what it feels like to pat a barracuda on its behind. With always this humble democratic touch, you too could have had this type of holiday if you'd bought the right tickets. But there you were, as the observer advised, in Corfu or Bangkok, and had had the guts and had, didn't have the guts to walk alone at night in the customer. The past master of this third type of tourism is Richard Kapuchinsky. If you want to feel how it was when Ethiopia, Iran, or El Salvador went up or down, Kapuchinsky definitely prefers down, in flames, the poll will brilliantly convey it. In his diverting editorial to Granta, William Beaufort rightly observed that Kapuczynski has spent most of his adult life looking for national disasters. Nonetheless, Kap- Kapuscinski is still caviar to the disquieted general. His speciality is third world got a his style ironical and aphoristic, and his authorial person, coolly nihilist. If he has a certain class that Naipaul lacks, he nonetheless remains a broker of historical experiences, not a prophet in his mother country. He is fully aware that, shallow down, his English-reading audience gives not a fig for what occurs in Tehran or Addis Ababa, and he can thus afford to let his irony wash evenly over Haile Selassie, Reza Pelevi, and their variegated adversaries. And the last uh, paragraph. No, it's it's difficult to read without explaining further. But he basically gets down, and what really sends him crazy is the account given by James Fenton, uh, writing about Malaya, uh, about uh, visiting the Philippines, which is a country that Ben really knew uh, very uh, uh, well. But so I can't read the whole of it, but I'll give you an example. This is the dream political holiday. Pirates, holy war, quacks, crucifixions, brothels, shipwrecks, plus the whole place to oneself. Unluckily, while the holiday was being planned, President Ferdinand Marcos, responding in part to pressure from the American government, announced a snap presidential election. And Fenton writes, by now everybody in the world seemed to have noticed what an interesting place the Philippines was. There would be a massive press call running after it. every politician and diplomat. There would be a deluge of background articles in the press. People would start getting sick of the subject before I had a chance to put pen to paper. I toyed with the idea of ignoring the election altogether. If I stuck to my original plan, I would wait till Easter, which is when they normally hold the crucifixions. I wasn't going to be panicked into joining the herd. Then I did panic and changed all my plans. It's a uh, it's a you know longish essay. <laughs> uh, those of you who get the new Left Review can get it on their on their website. But it's an absolutely wonderful read, and I hope we will reprint it in book form with his other uh, essays soon. So, <laughs> so, questions, comments, whatever.
0: Is this on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this seems necessary after that reading. Is, is any room made for the possibility of? Journalists and so on who might go to a country out of genuine intellectual curiosity and high moral purpose.
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, he is a, you know, knows quite a few journalists who do that and admires them greatly. Uh, you know, what angers him is the sort of celebrity uh, side of it. And he sort of argues that in most cases, the celebrities who go come back with very superficial. Whereas a journalist who knows the country, he or she has been based in that country for years, knows its history, talks to ordinary people, not simply uh, the governments, is uh, someone, ben, you know, people like that, Ben knew and helped a great deal, actually.
3: Can I also say something about that? In everything that he has written, he has required the reader to suspend their own judgments before they actually understand a place or understand the argument that he's making about a place. And I think that that requirement, which also comes across in his work, what I I, I think I called empathy, it it, it is what he would require. And I think that you see it in the ways in which he writes about people. I read a whole lot of the reviews he'd written for the New Left Review, um, sorry, for both NLR and LRB. And, And it is interesting that even if he disagrees with somebody but finds them writing sympathetically, and with that suspended judgment, he's much more generous to them than he would be in that instance. And I think that that's the difference, really, is that sense of empathy and suspension of one's own prejudged assessments of a place, adjudication of a place. Um,
0: just when Lala mentioned the footnote, something came to mind. And I remember reading also as a grad student, and uh, there's a footnote where he thanks uh, Hushang Chihabi, who's a scholar of Iran. He explicitly mentions this um, uh, this anecdote which we mentioned where the Shah takes soil from Iran when he's leaving, when he's basically been, when, when he flees Iran, where a revolution is basically like taking place, he takes some soil from Iran with him on the plane as he's leaving to Panama or wherever it is, and he actually thanks Fusheng Shahabi, who must have been a graduate student at that point in Princeton or something, so it's sort of amazing sort of humility, I mean, for a scholar of that kind of caliber to thank a grad student, I mean, just quite remarkable. I can't imagine that today or happening very often. Um, the question was, I read about half of the memoir. I couldn't put it down, but I had to get to things, unfortunately. But um, I was really fascinated by the relationship between the two these two quite remarkable brothers, and um, whether someone could elaborate on that and how they interacted and engaged, and how they shaped one another's intellectual development. Because for me, that's quite personal. It's quite fascinating.
4: <clears throat> well, Terry knows <laughs> very well. Uh-huh.
2: So I think that you know, uh, Perry. I mean, I'm I'm going to say something on this, but just so that you know, I think Perry is working on a long essay on Beth, and uh, both as an intellectual and as a brother. And so we will probably, you know, he, I, it hasn't been written as yet. He is working on it, and we will publish it over the next four or five months, and that will be the most authoritative account, if perhaps partial. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben, we will never know. In which Ben's sense, of, own view In which that. sense but, of the word? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, it's it obviously something that couldn't be done when Ben <clears> was alive, though <throat> so it would have been nice to had, had an exchange but uh, Ben writes if you read what Ben writes both in Imagine Communities and some of his other books that he got an enormous amount of help from Perry on n- not on what, pol- what political line he should adopt or anything like that but Perry had this uh, has this ability not just with Ben, but with many other writers who write for the New Look Review and Verso, to suggest books and additional essays which would actually strengthen their argument, even if he doesn't agree with it. And he's very generous like that. And, of course, with Ben, he was even more concerned uh, uh, to do that. So the relationship... uh, intellectually, uh, was uh, a close one. And, uh, you know, they went in different directions. Ben went to Asia, Uh, Indonesia became the country he studied uh, uh, till the coup d'etat, but he still kept on uh, with that country. Perry was very interested. His first texts were published long before he became editor of the New Left Review, under Edward Thompson's editorship, or Stuart Hall's, I can't now remember, Perry published two essays on Portugal. And Mm. that interest in Portugal, knowing the language, then took him to Brazil, of which he still writes, as LRB readers will know. And he, too, had to leave Brazil in 1964 when there was a coup. Uh, so it's sort of an interesting symmetry there in, in their lives. And of course, they were very different, as Ben carries on saying right till the end, well, Perry was the political one, which is certainly true in the, when they were younger. But I think Ben did become very political in his own right and in his own unique way of uh, looking at things. And one shouldn't imagine... <clears throat> that because their politics is different, their interests in some cases are different. That Ben wasn't political, in my opinion, he was very political, uh, and he describes in this book how he, he he became that. So I think, in by and large, it was a very fraternal and uh, collaborative. a a relationship which is not always the case with brothers as we've noticed with the Milibands in this country (laughs) and as we notice with others and there is a sort of Sicilian phrase fratelli coltelli (laughs) brothers knives but that doesn't apply in this case one is very (laughs) pleased to say but uh, you you will be able to read the Perry's version of this relationship Intellectual and personal. I hope so.
4: I was thinking a bit about this in the last few days. Um, uh, you know, I, I know Perry a little, and I, I don't didn't know Benedict. Um, but I think it's um, they're they're a fascinating British case, uh, and I think that in with both of them, I think they're special situation um, is a clue to uh, part of their strength. I mean, uh, those of you who uh, read a few years ago a very extraordinary, wonderful um, long memoir that uh, Perry wrote about the childhood in China uh, will remember um, that they grew up right as uh, the sons of uh, a, a very formidable servant of empire, uh, running right. I, I'll probably get the technical details wrong, but sort of running essentially a kind of uh, parallel state uh, uh, called called the Customs Union or the custom right. But I mean, it was immensely powerful. Part of uh, British imperialism. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's very important that um, this that they're both profoundly English uh, and they, you know, they're they're part of a certain uh, privileged England. Absolutely, no doubt about that. Right, educationally and otherwise, class-wise, um, but. Um, you know that Nietzsche talks about pessimism of strength. Uh, I think that both of them perhaps have a a marginality of strength or a depeasmal of strength. That they that that their English coexists with an absolutely confident non belonging,
1: mm-hmm.
4: um, uh, you know, or a multiple belonging. Uh, very very, uh, w- which perhaps I think. Emerged from that uh, that fact of growing up as part of empire, as opposed to growing up as part of England. But you mustn't forget,
2: I, uh, you know, Tim, that Ireland played a very important part in mm-hmm. their upbringing okay. too. Very important, much more so than you would <coughs> uh, imagine. And in that piece you were referring to, uh, Perry's only uh, piece about his family, by the way, Ben wrote a very wonderful piece, too, which is not in this book. It was written for an Irish uh, magazine. And again, Ben's obstinacy was such. When I suggested that maybe that should uh, go in this book, he said no. Uh, but it will be. We will we will print it. <laughs> Yes. It was, uh, you know, in, in terms of that was the way uh, uh, he saw it. And for both of them, for uh, uh, the the Irish was very important. And uh, Perry's, uh, you know, one side of the family, the Irish side of the family, were quite clear about their politics, despite their Protestant background, Mm -hmm. they were very strongly for Irish independence, sympathetic to Sinn Féin, uh, and great admirers. Uh, Perry's father, Perry, once told me, was a great admirer uh, of Parnell, the victimized Irish leader. Uh, who, you know, interestingly, James Joyce was too. Yes, and James
4: right. Joyce talks about his father absolutely yes. adoring. Well, I mean, this is very much... This is a deep part of uh, the British left, isn't it? The the, the fact that certain key figures uh, grow up in an atmosphere of liberal empire, mm-hmm. right? You know, critical empire. Uh, but their <coughs> experience is of empire, um, I, I actually think that's a key to the strength, you know. I mean, there's an extraordinary moment, very, very touching moment in uh, imagined communities. Maybe I'll even read it to you because it's just so <laughs> uh, extraordinary. I think it's here. Yes. Listen to Thomas Brown encompassing in a pair of sentences the length and breadth of man's history. And then he quotes Even the old ambitions had the advantage of ours in the attempts of their vain glories, who acting early and before the probable meridian of time have by this time found great accomplishments of their designs, whereby the ancient heroes have already outlasted their monuments and mechanical preservations. And he quotes a couple more sentences. Then he says, Here, ancient Egypt, Greece, and Judea are united with the Holy Roman Empire, but their unification across thousands of years and thousands of miles is accomplished within the particularity of Brown's 17th century English prose. The passage can, of course, up to a point, be translated, but the eerie splendor, Of of probable meridian of time, mechanical preservations, such mummies unto our memories, and two Methuselahs of Hector can bring goose flesh to the napes only of English readers. (coughs) Wow. Now, thats I think there's something quite extraordinary and wonderful about the coexistence in this man of an absolutely unabashed reverence for the English language and his identification with it his love of it uh, and seeing see uh, with no guilt whatsoever because at the same time he he belongs profoundly passionately in other worlds um, I think that I hope his brother won't Uh, won't um, think I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, trespassing on things said in private if I I think this is okay. When I talked to him a few months ago, a few weeks ago in in L.A., uh, Perry was saying that when he went to the funeral in Indonesia, he was absolutely astonished by how little he really understood of the deep implanting of his brother in this society and the extraordinary reverence in which uh, he was held uh, and, you know, the multiple kind of connections with this world that uh, Perry was plunged into. And it's I think it's, that's extraordinary and wonderful, right? The sort of, you know, the absolute... I think that also, in my view comes back to this uh, privileged and unique upbringing, (coughs) which sort of enabled these two characters to sort of move with such confidence between different worlds.
5: Um, I'm struggling to uh, phrase as a question something that is really an observation, Um, and that is that... uh, Imagine communities uh, spoke to us in South Africa very strongly. I'm a social anthropologist and I was teaching at the University of Cape Town through the 1980s and all those uh, struggles against the apartheid state, but then also the uh, flaring up of um, a Zulu. Nationalism, it was called at the time because people didn't want to use the word tribalism, and neither did we as anthropologists. But we wanted to be able to say something about uh, the importance of these communities, these community thinking, these imagined communities to the people who were inside them, but without endorsing them and saying, you know, that. Um, these are uh, important these should be important influences on the way that the country develops because we were passionately on the side of the anc as it was at that time and wanting uh, a kind of unified country in which these tribal affiliations would have less uh, salience but without undermining them if you see what it was. so it was a very difficult balance that we re- and we found that Imagine Communities was a wonderful book in trying to think about that uh, problem. So I don't know if you'd agree that it has wider implications <coughs> than nationalism as sort of a country, a country's feeling about itself, but can also apply to much smaller groups of people thinking about
2: themselves. Yeah. I think we've got to, uh, to to come to a close. Vale and Tim, thank you very much thank for uh, joining us today to pay a homage and a tribute to the late Benedict Anderson. And thank you, Tarek. Uh, please do come and have a look at Benedict's marvellous books and um, have a browse at the rest yes. of the shop if you wish. Thank,
4: thank,
0: you. You. thank you all for yeah. coming.
2: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at
4: www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.